0: We're going to be in Ezekiel 35 again, continuing through chapter 36, verse 15. In these chapters, as as many of you have journeyed all the way from chapter 1, and we've taken some chapters or passages in larger sections and some in smaller, I I, I pray that the the Lord will be gracious to me in, in summarizing some of these chapters, particularly those of judgment, uh, I hope that we understand the, the full extent of god 's holiness in dealing with his people and I hope that we see the full uh, the fullness of their sinfulness as an affront to God and um, and so we transitioned into a place where God now literally flips the script and says, "Listen now that I have judged you, I will cleanse you now that I have I have I have laid my righteousness upon you will you please my people will you watch and will you wait and will you wonder at what I do with you?" And that's really the cry of of the gospel, right? If you will wait, and if you will watch, and if you will wonder at the cross of Christ, if you will quit trying uh, in your works and your strength, and simply watch and wait and wonder at the, at the feet of Jesus uh, for your redemption and for your good. And so, this is really the the theme of 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 how I want to to examine the next several chapters as we are fittingly in Advent season. Really, a call to watch, to wait, and to wonder at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ again. And so we. Will We'll do that today, looking at how God presents himself to his people. As he tells them to watch, wait and wonder, he begins today in chapter 35, really speaking against the Edomites, but but then speaking uh, purposefully and hope towards the Israelites. And he's saying, listen, I am your defender because you are in, you are incapable of defending yourself. You're incapable of doing this yourself. And so I will defend you. So today's text, we're going to examine that. Now I want to just read through the text and talk about it and then we'll pray and then we'll unpack it uh, if, if we can do that together. So I hope you have your Bibles. Chapter 35 is where where we are. Chapter 35 is a judgment. Again, if you're at this point and you're like, my goodness, when do we get redemption? I want, I want, uh, I want restoration. Well, we're going to have to deal with a, a statement against some people so that the Lord will then contrast judgment to redemption. So chapter 35, turn in your Bibles with me, begins by looking again at Ezekiel and saying these words, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. So he's speaking to the region of Edom, the Edomites. He says to this land, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you. There you go. I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand." hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood and blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. So verse six is really, it reminds me in many ways of Romans chapter 1 where the Lord says, where, where God speaks and it says, listen, the world wanted themselves. They wanted lordship. They wanted power, so God gave them what they thought they wanted. The people of Edom thought they wanted bloodshed, so blood the Lord shall provide and He will give it to them. And so verse 7, I will make Mount a waste and desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And he continues in verse uh, verse 10 saying, because you derided, because you you, you chastised my people, all of this is going to happen. And so chapter 35 is this great judgment against this place called Edom and again, I'm with you, right? We're, We're trying to get to redemption, and then you open another chapter, and it's like, look, the Lord is destroying more land, more people. Scholars don't really, well, a lot of scholars don't really know how to deal with chapter 35 because it is in the redemptive half of the book of Ezekiel. So some of them would say you do this creative cut and paste and you present chapter 35 with the other judgment chapters. I think there's too many parallels between chapter 35 and 36 for us to do that because the Lord is establishing judgment so that he can contrast it with redemption in chapter 36. So, Just to review, to make sure we're where we ought to be and seeing where the text goes, God simply says, I'm going to judge you. And that's what he does in really the first five verses. But in verse five, he makes a transition and starts saying, Here is why I'm going to judge you. And he's going to lay waste and there's going to be perpetual waste. Edom is going to go off the map. And he's going and to do it because they have intentionally chastised the people of Israel. They've been particularly hateful to the people of Israel in a deep-seated, long-standing way. And they have profaned the name of God, he says in verse 13 and following. So there's this judgment to the mountains. But then look at chapter 36 in the great contrast. So he has just prophesied against Mount Seir. And he is now saying in chapter 36, he is going to prophesy to the mountains of Israel from one range of mountains to another range of mountains. The promise could not be any... More different. So say this to the mountains of Israel in chapter 36 Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. He's speaking about the Edomites here. Because they did this, therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys and the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all of Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession and whole with wholehearted joy and utter contempt and that that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall thou shall themselves suffer reproach. And so he is saying, listen, I will defend you. And here's what will become of you. We're just going to go through verse 15, but you, O mountains of Israel shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they will soon come home for behold, I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown and I will multiply people on you. The whole house of Israel, all of it, the city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as your former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you and you shall be their inheritance and you shall no longer bereave them of children, thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. Last verse. And I will not let you hear any more the reproach of the nations and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. This is where the hope begins. This is where God takes his judgment and says, all of my wrath, all of the defense that is in me is for you. And I will protect you. You think about the journey thus far. And the Lord says, I will protect you. I will restore you like never before. So let's pray on that and then we'll unpack together. (sighs) Father, it's, it's although in a more figurative sense, in our generation, we certainly feel... Uh, the desolation and wasteland that are the hills and the valleys and the ravines and the cities. But so are um, our homes this morning or our lives or our souls or our hearts. Perhaps we enter into this space recognizing the, the cavern, the emptiness that is our own soul. Lord, we're, we're asking you, I am asking you on behalf of a church. To demonstrate to us the same grace you demonstrated to Israel in promising so long ago, and promising something yet to be fulfilled. And Lord, I I'd I pray for peace in the midst of chaos, for calm in the midst of chaos, and Lord, for clarity in the midst of confusion in a world that prides itself on confusing truth. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be thoughtful and pleasing to you, for you are my rock and you are my redeemer. Amen. So as we unpack the text this morning, I want to kind of set this up by, by a recurring theme that um, causes me much grief every single year at Christmas. It's this, and, and I've already, it's already been addressed on social media with me. People have already picked on me. People have already brought up Hallmark Channel to me many times and Hallmark Movies. Uh, there are 40 new ones that started playing like in April, I think. Um, the Hallmark Channel is, has more than 70 million viewers every season. I think that's fascinating. I do have socks and a sweatshirt that that say, don't bother me, I'm watching Hallmark. I, I still can't get it. Um, ask Stacy. Stacy makes a profound statement. She says, it's just simple. It's predictable and simple, which it is very predictable, right? Upper middle class white woman leaves a corporate career to, to move to a remote village where it's always snowing and never windy. That's very predictable. Um and you know it's gonna happen. And 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 so I, I was I was digging into that a little bit more and came across this wonderful scholarly statement, this this scholarly article entitled Hallmark Christmas Movies Are Cheesy, Here's Why We Still Love Them. And she makes the same point. She says the exact same thing as Stacy does. There are no political tensions or even signs of socioeconomic differences in Hallmark movies. She goes on to say that even the cultural war on Christmas that we hear so much about, right, is nowhere to be found in the movies, although Hallmark limits the definition of Christmas to cozy fireplaces, time with family, and decorating the tree and gifts. But it's the absence of conflict and the presence of simplicity that makes these movies so appealing. Now, I will confess to you this morning, in in, in spite of my somewhat, fr- my frustration with Hallmark, is how I'll word that, that if I turn on the TV and a Hallmark movie happens to be on already because Stacy's left it on the Hallmark channel, I may or may not change the channel for 20 minutes or so because it just pulls me in. It's just simple. It is. It's, 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 there's not a lot of thinking to it. But at the core of Hallmark's success, at the core of Hallmark's viewership that, that boasts more than 70 million viewers, now Netflix has jumped on board and said, we got to make some of these predictable plot lines. Below the surface of all this is the common human desire to escape the duplicity, the politicization of the world, the deeply divided world that we live in, and just sit in front of something simple. Something a little less heavy. Something markedly more peaceful than what we're dealt This similarly is that same feeling, that nostalgic feeling we have of Christmas time, particularly in the church when we sing Christmas hymns and we put the nativity together and we breathe easy before the pressures of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Small Business Saturday creep into our lives. Simplicity is what we seek and it is simplicity that Hallmark recognizes as a marketable brand. It is from this place of rest, this place of longing, that we find ourselves, although disconnected in culture and time, spatially distant from ancient Israel and the land of Edom, we find a yearning in the human heart for peace. We find a yearning in a human heart for something more. We are longing for something to settle. But first, got to recognize some things. And that's really what Ezekiel 35 and 36 helps us to do. i I just make two observations. And then again, kind of an application point from the text. And the first observation is what's happening in 35 in the midst of this longing, in the midst of human suffering, in the midst of disaster and calamity after calamity, in a world that throws headlines at us hourly or minute by minute if you have enough apps connected to your phone. In a world that is running, but running nowhere fast, we need to acknowledge the deep-seated and long-standing and historical truth that the world is at war. And I don't use that term lightly. I don't use that term flippantly. And it's not like I'm sitting up here saying joyously, the world is at war and you all start saying amen. I'm not saying it like that. I'm just simply saying that the church has never been called to create this utopian falsehood that the world is not at war or that the world is somehow better than it ought to be. That's simply not what we see unpacked in Scripture. We, in fact, we see through Judges and through Ezekiel and through every other book we've been in. I hope we see that the, the gospel and scriptures itself is very clear on the reality and the pervasiveness of sin. And in this case, it's just like front and center. The world is at war, and there's nothing that any one human's gonna do to change it. I mean, 35 is this judgment. Against against this place called Mount Seir, which is really the idea is is that it's pronouncing judgment against in the literal in the language high places of the Edomites, and this is not something that happened like three weeks ago or three months ago. It's five eighty six. It's not like last year. You know, there was a peace treaty between Judah and Edom, and they were like, no, you backed out of the deal. This is much deeper. The Edomites for ages, that's God's God's indictment against them. They have always looked upon the land of Israel, the land of Judah, and with contempt. And they've taken advantage of every opportunity to jump on board with an enemy force. They hear the Babylonians coming and say, hey, Babylon is attacking Judah. Let's jump in with their army. Maybe we'll get some of what's rightfully ours. They believed in rightful ownership to this property, these folks did, because these, these are not just newcomers on the block. No, these are the descendants of Esau. Jacob's brother. And they believe since Jacob, in their mind, wrongly stole Esau's birthright, that the land of Israel is rightly theirs. And they believe that for a long time. Here's what the Lord says against them in this war. Verses five through fifteen tells us that this war, this judgment, is long-standing battle that has raged through the ages, and he gives them five reasons for their judgment, beginning in verse five. First of all, the people of Edom cherished perpetual enmity; they were not looking for peace. They were satisfied at war. If you haven't already, read Genesis twenty-five through twenty-eight to see what unfolds there on the pages in the storyline of. Jacob and Esau. Also in verse 5, you'll see that the Edomites never missed an opportunity to endorse or participate in attacks against Israel. Every time they seized the day, so to speak, they carpe diem to battle. Now look at verse 10. Fundamentally, the Edomites believed that the land still belonged to them since Jacob had obtained his birthright by deception. Verses 12 and 13, they blasphemed the mountains of Israel. And verses 14 and 15, they defied and spoke against God without restraint. You know, more than a hundred years later in Malachi, God would speak against the Edomites in this way in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? This is Israel. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Perpetual enmity against these people. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is a hundred years later after the Babylonians have decimated the land country of Edom. And when we see mountains, we're talking about a range of mountains from the Dead Sea up to Judah. Brothers and sisters, this is not a war that you sit down at a round table, have some peace talks, negotiate some deals, and come out of war. This is a deep-seated hate. It's a deep-seated hate that's happened since the first war when Cain killed Abel, World War I which all entered the storyline because of sin. Let's just understand something that in a world where every beauty pageant contest winner says that they dream of world peace and they're going to accomplish that ends in the year that they're crowned, whatever most beautiful. In a world where we believe diplomacy will somehow uh, will will save us, will deliver us from all that that treats us and threatens, and that comes at us, that that assaults us and attacks us, in a a world that believes peace is this, this, this realistic opportunity, and there are those, we must acknowledge that the world has been at war for a long time. Plato himself, writing in the BC era, said, only the dead have seen the end of war. We must recognize that the world is at war. And do so understanding that no human authority has the ability to end this war or bring peace. No human authority, no human institution, no government, no power, no country has the power to end the war that has been boiling over and brewing for years upon years. When I recognize this rightly, brothers and sisters, when I see that the world is at war, it doesn't cause me to become disengaged, but rather it causes me to, to take wisdom right wisdom and, 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 and love to the public square and to see the world rightly. I think if we understand that the world is at war, that no human power is going to solve what ails us, although we may slow and we may help, we will never fix. It helps me to recognize that I pledge my uh, allegiance ultimately to God alone who can bring calm to the chaos ultimately when I understand the the war that has been brewing and the war that will continue to brew until Christ comes, it prevents me or, or guards me from fighting for the wrong things. But most importantly, when I see the scale that is war, the world at war, it protects me from becoming overwhelmed and crippled by the news. So let's just not pretend this away. Let's acknowledge the brokenness around us. Let's not pretend that it's in the distant past or something that will be cured by human ingenuity. And why is that? Because although they would fight with swords and destroy the walls of cities, this war that Ezekiel speaks of is not primarily fought with human weapons. This is a different type of war. A second observation from the text is that this war is spiritual The war is spiritual. The true problem and the true cause in all human division, the brokenness that leads to war upon war in each and every generation. Einstein, I already mentioned Plato, may as well throw in a, a, a more contemporary genius. He says, you know, don't know what World War III will be fought with, but I do know that World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. I mean, even them, those, the unregenerate, see that war and violence is progressing in some way. So is it a matter of nations who can't seem to share common ideals or policies? Is this war the result of just two geographic neighbors who, who couldn't see eye to eye for a time? Who were they waiting for to rise up? Let us recognize that the war is spiritual. There's more at work in the wording of this text. It's not a coincidence that mountains are a direct contrast in 35.2 and 36.1. It's not a coincidence that Ezekiel begins or the Lord begins his prophecy towards Edom and then his prophecy towards Israel in very similar ways saying, I want you to turn your face against the mountains of Edom and I want you to prophesy to the mountains of Israel. It is more than, 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 than topography that, that, that God is speaking through Ezekiel in these passages there's, there's more at work. It's more than coincidence. God speaks judgment to the mountains of Edom. And from, look at this, look what happens in the chapter. From the mountaintops and the judgment of Edom, the land will be laid waste. In verses 8 and 9, he says, From the mountaintops, the hills, the valleys, the ravines, and the cities will be destroyed. And likewise, he looks over in chapter 36 and he says, from these mountains, that the hills, the ravines, the valleys, and the cities have been destroyed in verse 4. And then in verse 10, he points to the restoration of the cities, all happening from the mountaintops. Well, why why the mountaintops? Why the significance? Well, because the war is spiritual. And, and And the idea here, the language used for the mountaintops in this text is high places. It's where the people of God constructed pagan altars to Baal or Asherah, right? To Moloch and others. How many of you remember Ezekiel 6? It's 30 chapters ago. That's all. Okay. So all of you are honest this morning. Praise be the Lord. So Ezekiel chapter 6, look, go back there in your Bibles real quick. It's fascinating because chapter, if chapter 36 is redeeming what was wrong in chapter 6. And God's primary complaint in Ezekiel chapter 6 is the idolatry that's run rampant. And he's prophesying against the mountains of Israel there or Judah. So why is he doing all this crazy mountain talk? It's like, God, I, like, what, what do flatlanders do when they read Ezekiel? I have no frame of reference. We do in Boone, North Carolina. In Ezekiel chapter 6, and even throughout the book of Ezekiel, the problem is that the Israelites who chased after false gods, as the language is very strong in Ezekiel 6, right? As for the Israelites who chased after the false gods, constructed their pagan altars to Baal and Asherah and Moloch on top of mountains. The shrines would literally look down over the people of Israel, reminding them of their allegiance to false gods, and the people would always lift their eyes, but they would not lift their eyes to the Lord from where their help comes, as the psalmist says, but rather they would lift their eyes to the false gods who looked over the entirety of their lives. It's the same way in modern false religions. In India, you can find... Temples shadowing over the slums, reminding the people that the eyes of the gods are always upon them. And so it is their duty to do what the gods demand of their lives. The Lord begins by saying, I will redeem the mountaintops. I will redeem the spiritual status of my people. And from the redemption of their spiritual status that will flow into the valleys, the ravines, the hills and the cities. Our college video that we made a promo video a couple years ago or last year, you know, it's kind of this fast moving video just to introduce college students to our church and our college ministry says this thing at the end of it, it says, we believe that movements always start on a mountaintop. And the idea there is, is not necessarily, although we happen to be on a mountaintop in Boone is that the Lord begins these things by spiritually cleansing his people and sending them into the valleys and the hills and the ravines and the cities Brothers and sisters, this war of the human heart, which is really what's at play here today, has been raging since the garden. Again, since World War I when Cain killed Abel. The war has manifested itself with flags and armies and battleships, but it is spiritual. This is deeper than diplomacy and far more pervasive than policy. It is a spiritual war. War And we would be wise to recognize the spiritual war at play, to see the spiritual reality of human conflict. It's like the massive ditch that can't be missed in the world, but yet the whole world can't seem to see it. To see the spiritual battle that is play in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, in our country, in our world today, it's it's to see the abyss that the blind masses fall into without giving a second thought. Brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual problem in the nation of Israel. It's a spiritual problem in the land of Edom. Why are we so bold to suggest that the spiritual realms and the forces of dark in this world are not intricately involved in all that is work in the text? I mean, clearly in a New Testament way, Paul is trying to open the eyes of the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 12, saying, quit looking entirely at the physical realm, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying, open your eyes to what is at play all around us. And I think the same could be said of Ezekiel 35 and 36, as God says, this fundamental war is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And God himself uncovers the blindness from the land of Edom and the land of Israel. He destroys the valleys and cities from the mountaintops just as he restores them. This is where we are. We are in a world at war and the war cannot be stopped with ceasefires. That's a whole lot of what's happening in 35 and 36, just kind of in a, long elevator speech maybe to the top of the Empire State Building way. So so here I am raising lots of kids, (laughs) right? We're going to max out the minivan with the number of kids we have. Maybe move to the sprinter. I'm raising kids in this world. I hear people all talk, you know. So right now the construction industry is... Busy, to say the least. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what bids for the Beyond facility come back like, because people are very busy. Uh, financially, we know what happens when bubbles get big, right? They go, some point. Um, who knows what's happening internationally? We're more divided than people say we've ever been, and those are folks who have seen lots of different political climates. Political scientists who have studied political division in the states. Remember, we're just a babe in this uh, democracy process. So I have lots of reasons to take my newspaper and my frown and go to the breakfast table every morning. I have lots of reasons. You do too. And not to mention when you go to sit down, like your back or your knee will probably hurt. Right. And you sit down and you can read what Congress does or the president does or what happens in Syria and Russia and all these things. You have lots of reasons To lose hope. The world gives us lots of reasons to lose hope. Any one of you, every one of you in this room have a battle for hope right now in your life. It could be income, could be financially related, could be politically related, who knows what it is. But listen, the narrative out there, outside of Hallmark, is not very hopeful. And that's where we... Live. That's where I live in a place where I could fear raising children in this kind of culture in a in a place where I could I could look at uh, the goodness that God has provided uh, us in ways and just say, well, it's all going to be gone and it may. But brothers and sisters, that's not what God's getting at. He's not saying do not lose. He's not saying lose hope in this war. He's not saying that this spiritual war is hopeless or without end or without resolve or resolution. Quite the contrary. He's saying watch, wait, and wonder because I'm going to take something that is not fixable by your pesky little hands because every time your pesky little hands get in the middle of the meddling with my business, you mess it up. So watch, wait, and wonder at what I do. Let me defend you. Watch me defend you. That's what the Lord speaks of in this beautifully redemptive chapter 36 beginning particularly in verse 11 where he says and I will multiply on you man and be speaking to the mountains of Israel literally my people will gather again my people will gather again he gives four big promises in verses 8 through 12 he says the land will be fruitful the house of Israel will return and multiply the return will be permanent God's people will never again be ridiculed and scorned these elements seem to have an eschatological implication. Fancy seminary way of saying these are a future fulfillment from now, from 2019. That's what I, what I, I, I believe in this text. I believe that what we see is the Jews return to their land, the Jewish people return to their land in 535, but in 70 the temple is destroyed and we see dispersion across the land and that's where we get a lot of the New Testament writing. I think what we see in this text is a promise to come. Ezekiel again, looking beyond himself to something that cannot be fully understood. Brothers and sisters, this is where Seth Norris, this is where the New Testament church enters the narrative. If you haven't already seen that before, we are awaiting this promised church. This is why I raise children joyfully. This is why I do this. This is why I wake up every day. This is why I can turn on the news and change the channel. Because this is not where my hope comes from. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you Well, it's not the world or the war within it. I want to show you tonight what we'll be reading from as we draw towards a close. This is the application, but I just want to bring this in the New Testament for you. Advent is this crazy thing. Go ahead and put 2 Peter 3 up there if you don't mind, Jen. Advent is this crazy thing that we don't really know where it began. The, the, the tradition of Advent. But we know about the fourth century, the church regularly set the, the, the weeks before Christmas aside for the celebration of Advent. Of course, you know, all that was calendared. But they intentionally spent the first two weeks acknowledging the Christ child, the God man who came, who entered the war to bring peace. And the last two weeks, they recognize the warrior king, who is also Christ, who will again enter the conflict to bring peace. And I say this every single year, but it's important for us to anchor our hope in these truths, too. In the inaugurated kingdom brought in by an innocent and perfect child who was clothed in both flesh and fully divine. This is our answer to the war that brews. This is our defense in a world that is chaotic. This is our hope and our longing in a world that so desperately cries out. And so Peter is speaking to New Testament believers using similar language, but I want to connect the dots because we see this new covenant promise. And we're going to read this tonight at the Advent service again. That you've never heard 2 Peter 3 at an Advent service. But the promise is this, that by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire for this great cosmic war. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, just as God poured out his destruction upon the Edomites. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. People at this point in 2 Peter were saying, hey, if your Lord's coming any day now, But do not look, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth, the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is this not an affirmation that the world is at war and ultimately the fire will come not to destroy, but rather to refine. Is this not a call to watch, wait and wonder as the Lord demonstrates the defense of his people Watch what God is doing. That's the call, that's the cry of the gospel. Watch what God is doing and tell others to watch too. Wait with eager anticipation. Wonder as He unfolds human history for His glory. That God defends defends His people. In this we rest. In this we hold, brothers and sisters. Do not allow the headlines of the day to sway you any direction or another. Do not be tossed to and fro with vain human philosophy, but lean in to the fullness, the sovereignty and the promise of the kingdom to come. This is the purpose of Advent to get us in a place of yearning. You don't have to have the Hallmark Channel to find peace, simplicity, unity, and peace, these are words of the gospel. It's the theme of Advent. And it enables us to sing it as well. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts for a month of focused hope, of focused watching, of focused waiting, of focused wondering. Let me pray for you and your families right now. Lord, my God, I pray an awesome wonder, I thank you for each man, woman, boy, and girl in this room who gathers this morning for the sake of your name, Lord, we will inevitably rush to the chaos that is before us in a season that is built upon and exploits chaos. Lord, I I have no idea nor can I fathom the break, the hurt, and the voids that come into this room every single Sunday clothed in the appearance of wellness. But I know, Lord, even when clothed in such appearance, I often I'm broken before you. Lord, this world is at war and this war is something that cannot be handled with human will or human power. This war is one that will be settled one day and ultimately by a rider on a white horse. It will come with one last swing of justice to defend his people to rise up his children to raise them to a place of eternal glory to raise us to this place God in a world that markets itself on spreading a narrative of hopelessness may we be a people who counter that narrative Who proclaim the goodness of hope, that hope has a name and his name is Christ. May we be settled in conviction, unwavering in compassion. Lord, may we be a people who raise the white flag of our King. May we sing with full assurance this morning. That it is well as we look to the day of victory to come. And may we live in the present moment, anticipating the coming of our Lord Jesus. May we fully believe the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the narrative that occurred 2,000 years ago when Christ entered the war, who lifted the war on a cross and was nailed to this cross for peace. I pray that we, collectively, each person individually, as called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, has been born again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, church, as we affirm together that our souls are well this morning, that our defender reigns on high. And let's sing and anticipate his coming. That is the purpose and the sight of this season together. If you do not follow Christ this morning, if you have not confessed and believed on the Christ, in this moment, turn from your sin, repent before a holy God, and call on the name of Jesus to be saved, to receive a heart of flesh from a heart of stone, to see dry bones walk again. It's the promise of the gospel. Let's worship.